Hi, I'm Cheryl and Sen. Hello, this is Christabel. Hello, this is Michael Horse. I'm Amy Shields. I'm Mark Frost. Hi, I'm Kimmy Robertson. Hey, Ben, this is David Duchovny. We have a beautiful, beautiful book. Twin Peaks Unwrap the Book. You can get it at bluerosemag.com. Supplies are limited. Uh, get this bad boy while it's hot. Want to say we're under the 300 mark for these books. Yes. And then yes. once they're gone, they are gone. Our thinking would be that the book would be gone by the end of the year. I mean, I don't even know if it's going to last that long. But the idea was that, hey, this is the 30th anniversary. Like, wouldn't it be cool just to have a book that could be available to really diehard Twin Peaks fans? We recommend you pick it up at bluerosemag.com. Thank you for your interest and for your enthusiasm and, and keeping Twin Peaks alive. I used to be Richard Beamer. You're listening to Twin Peaks Unwrapped. Uh, oh, Unwrapped. I'm your host, Ben Durant, and beside me is... Brian Kazaska. Hi, Brian. Hey, Ben. How's it going? Great. What do we got going on today? Uh, well, we just got off the phone with, with the one and only... Richard Beamer. Yeah. He plays Ben Horn in Twin Peaks, and he's so much more. I mean, it's such a fascinating guy. I really could listen to him talk for hours, and I think, yeah, there's just so much more I feel like I want to learn about this guy, because he just is really something else. A fascinating career, um, fascinating person, and... And we get to dive into a lot of other yeah. facets other than Twin Peaks. And I don't know if anybody else has noticed this, but I really feel like there's some similarities between him and Lynch. I really do. I, you like, bring that up to him. I do. I will. And you should listen to it. But I think you could make a case that he's got a similar style to Lynch. Yeah, I, I do agree. I do agree. But with that, Ben, I, I think it's time for Richard Beamer. So we're on the phone with Richard Beamer. We know him as Ben Horn from Twin Peaks, but he's so much more. And I really am <laughs> so excited to talk to you, Richard. I guess we're rolling. Now is that what that intro? <laughs> yes, yeah, That's we're good. rolling. We're rolling. Oh, you didn't roll the first part where I just said hello. Okay. <laughs> I'm used to doing everything's behind the scenes. Yes, which oh. I find much more interesting than what ends up being in front of the camera. Twin Peaks is the exception. What was one of the first things you documented, and what with what kind of equipment? I knew that when you were a teenager, you did photography, but I was just curious, maybe what your one of your first memories of documenting something would be. Uh, the first film I made was in Mississippi in 1964. So how old were you during that time? About 24, something like that. In summer of 64, it was about voter registration, and, and it was called Freedom Summer, and that had to do with blacks registering to vote. There was something called the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and college students, they decided to organize a voter registration in Mississippi because the blacks couldn't vote. So to do that, a lot of college-age folks who were interested in 
important social issues and so forth, went down to Mississippi that summer. The voter registration phase of the Mississippi Project consisted of a house-to-house canvas to try to encourage people to go to the courthouse and register to vote. When trying to encourage the people to register, the biggest problem you deal with is fear. Registration in Mississippi consists of filling out a long and extremely complicated form in every way designed to eliminate the Negro. Like, by whom are you employed? Well, see, when you put by whom are you employed, you fired by the time you get back home. You know, heads rolled. And uh, one of the things that happened there that made the summer very well known, did you ever see a film called Mississippi Burning? I've seen it, but it's probably been 20 years or so since I've seen it. The moment those three kids disappeared, it was news. The moment the three civil rights workers disappeared, it was news. You'd kill Frank? Is that what you're saying? I wouldn't give it no more thought than wringing a cat's neck. These people called out of a sewer, Mr. Ward! We do not accept Jews because they reject Christ. We do not accept Papists because they bow to a Roman dictator. We do not accept Turks, Orientals, nor Negroes. We're not killers. That's the difference between them and us. That's the difference between them and you. Did you smile when the bulldozer ran over the black kid's body? We're here to protect Anglo-Saxon democracy in the American way. What's wrong with these people? 1964, when America was at war with itself. It had to do with that summer, and it was about all of us that were down there, and three boys were killed that summer. Well, they were found missing. Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner. Two guys were from, white guys from New York, one was a black guy from Mississippi. The FBI was looking for them all summer, couldn't find them. They suspected it was the local sheriff and his buddies. Turned out that it was. They found them near the end of the summer, buried under a dam. You know, you, you know how to make a dam in the country. You just get a big bulldozer and you dig a big hole and and you bottle up like a little valley or something and then, you know, wait for the rain. Well, the part where the bulldozer were building, building up the, the dam part, uh, they found them under there. Oh my gosh. Oh. Did this happen before or after you, were, you decided to make a film about that summer? I went there and it was at the end of the summer that they they were found. Oh, oh wow. So it was, well, we were done there, yeah. But I did not go to Mississippi to make a film. I went to Mississippi to be a part of voter registration. This was supposed to continue on in the winter. Other people were supposed to come down and do voter registration in the winter. So this was called the summer. Since we were the first group there, I got an idea that it might be interesting to make a little film so the next wave of students and everyone that was coming down there would have some idea what they were getting into because we did. I mean, particularly the white guys from the North, they're a lot of black black guys who lived in Mississippi, you know, they they knew, watch out. And the whole thing was based on nonviolence, Gandhi's nonviolence. Yeah, yeah. You know, you rolled up on a ball and laid on the ground, and, and if they were going to beat you or kick you or whatever, that's what you did. And were you concerned about violence? I mean, you, I, I think it's wonderful that you went out there to help out this cause, but was there a point, part of you that knew there was violence out there and, and had some concern about it? I knew there was violence. A few months before the summer, even, there were four young black girls that were killed in a church, they blew it up. So and this was not a big secret. Yeah. I mean, this was everywhere in Mississippi and in the South. This was this was not like once in a while. I mean, this was a time when, you know, the blacks couldn't uh, eat at a restaurant.
restaurant. You couldn't get in the bus. You had to sit in the back. We're talking about major, you know. I had been playing with photography, you know. I had a little dark room and stuff like that as high school. And so I, I was always doing that. But I had never actually had a motion picture camera in my hand. When I got there, I thought it might be interesting. They said, yeah, go ahead. Now, I didn't stop doing what I was doing. I just, I had a camera sent to me. And for those, <laughs> look this up. It's interesting. It's called a Bolex. Yeah. <laughs> 16 millimeter camera. Does, uh, it Does it have a crank? Yeah, you yeah. wind it up. Yeah. Oh, I think man. I may have tried one of those. Wow. And it was, if you went to film school in the 50s, 60s, 70s, this is what you would be making films with. 16 millimeter Bolex. That was just the thing that everyone used. Kind of like a tank. <laughs> it was really... You know, it was Swiss made and it was really great and the film would go frontwards and we could make it go backwards. You could do frame by frame. You could do a lot of fun things with it. But the thing is you when you wound it up, you only got thirty seconds. That's as long a take could be. Wow. Wow. So there was that and then the roll of film that went in the camera was basically three minutes before you had to take the side off, put another yeah. roll in. So you got that sent to you and then you just started filming everything you saw? Or what was the angle that you took? Well, it's the same thing I'm still doing. Yeah. As I sit here working on the film I'm doing now, hmm. uh, I just, it was the same thing I did with David. You know, I got a camera, I see things, I shoot. That, that was the end of the story. <laughs> basically what I was doing there was I was doing my voter registration part, which was, we all lived in the black communities. The difference between Oxford, Ohio and what happened here and in other freedom schools across the state is as different as reading about a philosophy and living it. Um, we simply we simply discussed what was going to happen there, but we didn't know whether, we, whether we'd be well received. We didn't know whether the kids would be enthusiastic. We didn't know whether uh, whether we'd be shot when we came into town. And we didn't know whether the school, whether the kids would come to school with 90% um, regularity or, you know, or 10%. We have won some students that we walk eight miles to that school. When the people come down, they come in pickup trucks and they pick up trucks just as low as they can get and they have to leave behind the ones that couldn't fit. of a freedom school is to supplement the system of public education in two ways. First, by remedial academic instruction, and second, by the discussion of controversial social issues which are close to the experience of the students and which the public school teachers of Mississippi are afraid to bring up in their classrooms. Your film is really something both Brian and I think saw some of it on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. And I just love these moments where the teachers are either holding the children or playing in the water with the children. Yeah, yeah. Or it's just it's just beautiful to see them all together. The whites and the blacks did not intermingle. Wow. And so this is the first time that black kids in particular had never been around white young people. And uh, so that was a, a big learning experience for both of us. Yeah. And it was as it was as much an experience for us down there is like, well, the northern white contingent that was down there than it was what the blacks were there. It was, it was quite extraordinary. But there was, you know, there was a lot of things to be concerned about, too, because at any moment, life could get very ugly. Yeah. Yeah. And your film did win an award? And it came to pass from the dedication of a few, the success of an idea, the Mississippi Summer Project. There will be more programs, and they will grow until finally... We shall overcome. Oh, deep in my heart, I know that I 
I know that it was only a few years ago PBS did their own Freedom of Summer documentary, and I know they used a lot of your footage for that. That's so. really cool. Yeah, it's never been out there all by itself. You know, I love your, uh, your some of your photography work that you've shared over the years with Twin Peaks people. Like, uh, the last episode of Twin Peaks, I think for about a week or so, you did uh, photography on the set. Can you share with us how you got involved? With wow, you guys have been doing research, haven't you? We're oh, trying. yeah, we're, we're good. Trying. Yeah. <laughs> we're trying. Wow. <laughs> it was the last episode. An uh, episode took, what, it took eight days to make it. So we always had a weekend in there. Uh-huh. And, you know, since it was a big cast and all, generally I had two to three days work on the show. So uh, I had done my time or whatever, and there was a feeling that this might be the last show. And we never had any photographers on the set. I mean, some people came down from the production office, I guess, and took some pictures. But there were no professional photographers that came in like to a movie sets and yeah. really, really color it. You know, I told David, I said, I, I like still photography and, and no one's doing this. How about if I just sort of cover you, get your camera? That's pretty cool. And I love yeah. how you captured them. I mean, did you t- tell them how to react or did they just pose? Or I mean, they, they, they just have this wonderful reactions that you get out of them. Yeah. It's just conversation. You know, you know these people for the most part. I knew, you know, some people better than others. And, um, and I think they felt free too. I mean, it was just, you know, another actor taking some photographs. Mm. Wasn't, they, I don't think they thought, wow, you know. Yeah. We're going, to, we're going to be talking about this 24 years. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was like a bunch of, uh, well, I can't say selfies, but, um, yeah, you know, it was just loose. And um, I liked how they came out in terms of what you're talking about, the people and yeah. kind of Grace Zabriskie. I love the shot of her mm. and Ray and uh, oh, there's so many. I That's really so like Iconic. They're iconic they really right now. Iconic, yeah. And I know at one point you actually did sell the prints, I mean, years ago. Would you ever think about selling the Twin Peaks prints again or maybe making a coffee book? Well, uh, let's see. As you probably know in all your research, a number of people have um, written books on David Lynch's Twin Peaks and back, you know, all sorts yeah. of books, you know, about five or six. And they've all contacted me. If you, well, you all know that some of the photographs are in those books. You're really generous that you've actually, people have contacted you about those pictures and you've been generous to let them use them in their books. So, I mean, I, it is wonderful that they're out there. Well, the, the originals, when they're really nicely printed and all, are, are very nice. And uh, my friend Christine McKenna, David Lynch's biographer, who someone else has started a magazine, and one of the first editions is going to be about David Lynch. What a, uh, what a surprise. Oh, yeah. But the piece is not about, I mean, the, the magazine is not about David Lynch. I mean, it, it, he's in the first one, but yeah. that's it. And they're using a number of my photographs for that. They're much larger than they've been seen before. Wow, but nice. as far as the other is, when I make up the whole, I think I have about 56 or something like that shots. There's a chance that they'll be showing at a gallery in L.A. That'd be but wonderful. That, that won't be for some time, but they'll be large. I mean, they'll be like maybe uh, 22 by 17 inches. That's cool. The best you'll ever be yeah, able to see them. I mean, yeah. that's something. So I just got your book, Imposter or Whatever Happened to Richard Beamer. I haven't got, I'm enjoying it. I just couldn't read it quick enough before we talked. Uh, unauthorized uh, biography. Do you have it right there? I think I yeah, do. Yeah, we're looking actually, at it right I now. I do have it. I think I have the newest copy. 
Does it say on on the cover a Manipian satire? Yes. Yes. I didn't okay, know what that that's meant. The, that's the right one. And then uh, the reason I did that is because I was listening to this critic uh, and writer who's since passed away, but he was on one of these um, talk shows about writing, and they asked him. He said, "Well, what are you doing?" I said, "Well, I've just finished the Manipian satire. I didn't hmm. know what that was. Do you know what that was? Do you I know don't that know that is no. Okay. Then he started explaining what a Manipian satire was, and I said, "My God." That's what I've been doing. Mm. So I had to redo it. So I will explain. There's a fun thing about the back of the book and the front of the book. So I'm going to read something to you. On the front of the book, it says a Manipian satire. On the back, it says a Manipian satire uh, does not follow traditional linear form. It utilizes weird locations, odd ramblings, digressions, strange characters moving between styles and points of view. It mixes prose, verse and drama in the treatment of serious philosophical questions often incongruous, incomprehensible, unfathomable, and lacking rhyme or reason. Okay. <laughs> now, the only bad review I got on Amazon was of this guy that I'm going to read, and he just, like, tore it apart, right? And, it, and here it is. Here's what he wrote. Okay. Okay. About this book, well, what can I say other than the fact that I found it incomprehensible, unfocused, unfathomable, <laughs> and anything remotely resembling rhyme or reason? <laughs> John Lasher, music, film producer, composer, conductor, director. So <laughs> I thought, and I got a hold of him and I said, John, that is the best review. He couldn't believe I was getting talking. <laughs> I said, thank you so much. You and he, he, I don't know if he ever got it, but he changed. And he went into this day, every time I have a birthday, he sends a little note saying, dear Richard, I hope you're well. <laughs> and because on Amazon, he, he he's not meaning it this way. You know, he's just telling yeah. me that this is a piece of crap. Uh, that's the Manipian satire. And um, there you are. I love it. I, yeah, that's, that's great. That's right up my eye. I mean, I feel like a lot of Lynch uh, people that follow Lynch that this is going to be their type of style yeah, yeah, of, a, yeah. of a book. We don't want cookie cutter things. We want abstract and things yep, that don't yep. rhyme reason. So this is this makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> but you know, I don't. You know, I I thought some of the stuff I did would be up a uh, Lynch fan, but I, it, it, it the stuff I've done doesn't really connect. I don't know mm. quite what the situation is. You know, we share a certain kind of poetic license and all that, but the stuff has never really clicked. The only thing that's clicked are the photographs that I've uh, done of, uh, yeah. you know, on the set. And maybe it's just because so. it's visual and everybody knows about it, and it's, especially in our social media time, yeah. everybody can just throw it up there and, and you see it and stuff. I yeah. think, you know, but when you read the book, if you if you get into it, I would be interested from someone you know who really is into all of that. What about this? It just doesn't make the mark with uh, you know the Twin Peaks fans reading this. I I, I don't know. I think they'd like it. Yeah. I, I would. I no, would definitely recommend. No, no, they, they, it hasn't. It, I, don't, I don't. We could do a book a book a book club. <laughs> yes. and your your book will be the first That's book, right. and we can see <laughs> we can. We're gonna get some other Twin Peaks fans on the show, and yeah. we're gonna have a book club, and this is gonna be our first book that we read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that you read. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> this will be the first book we all read together. That's right. We've never read before. 
someone wrote me who's a critic who read the book, and I really liked what he had to say. I mean, it was kind of crazy. You know, mm. he said it took a year to read it. He kept throwing it out the window. <laughs> no, 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 yes. no. It, 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 it was good. It yeah. was good. It was okay. Uh, uh, he, but he couldn't resist going out and putting it back on the shelf. I wrote and asked him if I could use that as a preface, and he said yes. And I love the, the picture on the front, which I think was from Peru. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really something. And what I love, I mean, I'm only starting this, but I love the idea of how you do collages and you're trying to get different ideas and how you kind of are making connections. And I think that's a beautiful thing that you do. And I just want to say that. I think that's really interesting how you can take work over years and years, 30 years, and relook <laughs> at it and reshape it and, and represent it. It's, it's really a, a wonderful gift you have. Thank you. I, I don't have a quite work over years taking. It. I mean, the film that I'm working on now, which I'm just about to finish, um, hopefully, I mean, no one believes me, but they keep saying, are you still working on this thing? I don't make story films, you know, like the plot. Yeah. You mm -hmm. know, who's going to do who and who killed what, and there we, here comes the good guy and the bad guy. I, I'm not interested in that. You know, it's a very independent way of what used to be known as independent filmmaking or underground filmmaking, and that usually consisted of like one person with a camera went out and their film sometimes too and but well, you didn't write a script first and then go edit and, I mean go find actors and, and you didn't do it that way it was more like painting would be you're exploring a subject but that world is kind of almost uh, you don't see it much anymore you can New York some places can do you see things films made like that but there was a point in my life in probably about the middle of the 80s when the video camera got small enough that I felt comfortable to uh, carry it around with me all the time. And it's the same thing process I did in Mississippi, which is I had this camera sent to me. I found a shoulder bag. I put it in, like a big purse. I put it in there and I went about my daily thing. When I saw something that interested me, I took it out, wound it up, and saw some film. Yeah, that's cool. And so the process is exactly the same. I had this thing and I had a, this little case around my shoulder and I wouldn't go anywhere uh, during the day without taking the camera. Uh -huh. I had tried to get a like a real movie <laughs> made a few times and one in particular I wrote a script and it almost happened and it didn't happen and I said okay this is the end this is not getting I'm not getting support here but I was interested in filming a lot of people in my life in situations that were really interesting to me but if I didn't have a camera with me on the spot and then come back and say can we do that conversation again it wouldn't work that way I had to get it I had to be made Making a journal is what I did. I, I, you know, where some people journal their lives. I, I was videotaping. Did that every day. I've shot and filmed everything in my life. If you were in my life, there it was. If you if if you didn't like it, then you probably ducked out of my life because everything was getting filmed. It's awesome. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And so you take that after a while, and you start saying, well, this might. Be interesting to mix with that and mix with this and mix with that. Process is everything. Process dictates the result. If you make a, a painting on a six by six can feet canvas with a little teeny brush, you're going to have a certain result. Yeah. If you have a huge brush and you're painting the side of a wall 
and it's like a moth, you got another kind of a process. And it, it'll dictate how it all comes about. And so the process for me with the writing was I had been I had been trying to write for a long time and it never was successful. I tried it also. I wrote with somebody else. That didn't work. I was trying to so uh, cut to a few years later when I was sitting, uh, I was in L.A., I remember, I was sitting by a window and I thought, okay, maybe I can try this idea. And nothing happened. I mean, it was just a terrible day and I was angry and I was throwing paper around and I was just disgusted with myself and I couldn't do it. That evening I was cleaning some stuff up and I, I saw some paper on the floor as I swung it away and I read it for a moment and I thought, wow, this is the best thing I've ever written. <laughs> and all, all it all it was was there was a point during the day when I was so pissed off that I just I almost used the pen as a dagger and I was scratching on the paper saying God mm. no, 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 no. I just went through this regurgitation of my feelings and threw it away like it was nothing but when I looked at it later I said finally you got something and then I realized that the only thing I was interested in writing was about my observations in my life mm. that's how that whole thing started so I just I started uh, writing about dreams thoughts. I decided if I wanted to start a story and it didn't go more than a page, and that's it. Forget about it. That's all at once. I was amazed by uh, overheard conversations in restaurants. <laughs> Who is it? Right. Those are the best. <laughs> those are the best. Those are the best. You know, I'm thinking, my God, what those people are saying, and not just the content, but the way they're putting words together and hemming and hawing, and I said, that's really great. And I knew that I would try to write it down, but that wasn't fast enough, so I started carrying a, a little tape recorder with me all the time that's awesome that I could turn on and off in my pocket and the microphone was actually uh, under my watch on my sleeve like a spy but I would get all these wonder you know, from friends and everybody you know people I didn't know or you know I would just get these I just wanted the words I wanted the, I wanted the conversations and then I would type those up later and then I started finding that that dream I had written down like four years ago dovetails perfectly with this conversation I overheard the other day. Hmm. There was something that brought them together. It might have been the subject matter. Something would would strike that this could go from one to the other because now we're getting back to what you said about the book, how the different things go together. Yeah. So it was like putting together this puzzle and then so finally that's how I, that's how the book finally came. I just had years of these uh, ideas and thoughts and uh, I started sticking them together and then they would sometimes Sometimes I'd find two pieces I liked, and but it, it, it suggested a bridge to bring together, and um, that's basically how it how it all went together. I feel like you and David Lynch must get along really well because, in some ways, <laughs> you seem similar in that you have these ideas. Like, I mean, we had talked to John Neff, who he was he worked with a long time with music, and he would tell us how David Lynch would have a shoebox of just poems, and he would just finally pick one out and say, "Read this," and we're gonna create some song <laughs> or something like that. But in some ways, it seems very similar in how you guys come up with ideas or do you find that do you guys do you see yourself similar in your artistic styles to David we never talked about it really <laughs> wow really because I'm hearing you it's like boy that sounds just like David he would write some things down notes and things and 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 he would just shoot things especially when I think about uh, davidlynch.com he used to have a website yeah, and he would do yeah. experimental things and he would just go out there and film stuff and then just sh share it or then he would take it and later on use it in Mulholland Drive and stuff so I don't know. It's uh -huh. funny. I'm hearing you, and I'm thinking, "Wow, this sounds like how David Lynch thinks and and does." His <laughs> I'm amazed. I, I would just assume, especially because you, 
so that was my next thing I was going to go into is it's a beautiful world where you did 10 days with him in uh, India. Can you share right. what that whole experience was like? Have you seen that? I unfortunately have not. Buster. It's a beautiful world. The nice thing about it is, it is David Lynch not directing. Do you have any movies, uh, thinking about ideas? Well, I, that, I have a, um, a kind of a distant desire to do, you know, like Inland Empire and Mulholland Drive were two of a yes. certain, certain right. world. I have a desire to do a third in that same oh, kind of world. Okay. But it, it, I don't want to think about it. No, no, I won't let you think about it. No, no. As you may know, the whole thing that David was doing was going there to see this journey that Maharishi took uh, from high in the Himalayas to the all the way to the bottom of India. He wanted to go the same journey so he'd get an idea because David was going to make a film of the life and times of Maharishi. I'm going to make a film on Maharishi uh, now, and uh, we're going to start this film uh, with a trip to India. Uh, in early December and we're going to go to many many places uh, where Maharishi and his teacher Gurudev uh, went and taught and uh, it should be uh, quite an experience and I won't know what that is till it's finished. But that so far hasn't happened. How did you get involved with it? How did you and David go off to India? Once in a while I'd see David when he came to town here in Fairfield where I am. They were just moments at a restaurant. Hello, how are you? Good to see you. I'm made a film on Maharishi's, basically was his funeral. I say that because the Indians do not do one day in, you know, you drive in black cars and with black veils. That's not it. It lasted for 10 days. It was in three parts of India. It was uh, quite a celebration and I went there and filmed a great deal of that and put it together. The idea of David Lynch cruising through this ancient culture was a filming opportunity I did not want to miss. David heard about that and wanted to see it, and uh, he did, and he liked it very much. And then about, oh, I don't know, it wasn't long after that, maybe a year later, I heard that he was going to go to India to start this film. So I wrote him a note and said, look, uh, I don't know if you probably already have someone else going along to film you, you filming. I said, if not, I'd love to go. And he said, Buster, come on, let's go. <laughs> First started a race head when I started I had a film I wanted to make all the equipment I could dream of a place to work the stables of a 55 room mansion mm -hmm. it was a mini sound stage a mini stage you know mm -hmm. and I thought I should be the happiest person in the world but when I looked inside there was no deep happiness. Really? Yeah. Wow. And I thought, man, I gotta do that thing. I gotta find that thing where they said true happiness is not out there. Uh -huh. True happiness lies within. Right. And so, look at these goats crossing. Guys <laughs> sleeping. That really pushed me to, you know, find the meditation to go within. 
I always wonder for something like documenting, how is it the editing process for you? Because you must have, you know, hours and hours of footage and then you have to look at it and say, how do I put this film together into a, a relatively maybe <laughs> couple hours? The piece I'm making now, I have footage from, I started this film 1994. I've got footage from years that I've been putting together and taking out and putting this in and taking this out. And so, but in the case of David's film in India, when you're shooting something, you you start, you remember the shots. I mean, mm. you remember, oh, there was that part there. And also, I had a built-in script, which was, we got in a helicopter in Delhi, and we went to the first place, high in the Himalayas, and we started working our way south. So, I saw no reason to throw that out and change it all around, because everything just sort of worked perfectly that way. So, that was my so-called script. It was just in my head, but mm. that was what I was thinking when I was editing. It was here at this seaside oh. temple that Maharishi said the inspiration first came to teach this effortless meditation technique. So David propped himself up against a nice, comfortable piece of granite, and along with Bobby, closed his eyes for a little meditation, fulfilling a desire he had to meditate in the same place where Maharishi had meditated some 50 years before. David is often asked about the source of his artistic creativity, to which he replies, If you're a human being, transcendental meditation will take you easily and effortlessly within to the deepest level of life, eternal level, unbounded consciousness, and when you truly experience that, unbounded intelligence is there, unbounded creativity, Unbounded love, unbounded energy, unbounded peace, and unbounded happiness. And life gets better and better and better and better and better and better. And better. Twin Peaks returned, and David asked you to document some of it. Can you share with us how that came about? No. <laughs> Great talking to you guys. <laughs> what do you want to know? How long did you uh, document for? I think it was a couple of weeks. One of the things I love about your style, at least some of the documentaries I've seen you do, is that you're kind of actively uh, present in the, the yes, documentaries, yes. which I think is a beautiful thing, is that it's not a passive thing, that you, you're talking to crew members and you're talking to other people, other subjects. I think that's a beautiful style to do that. I feel like I'm part of the crew. Very in more intimate and very light. Yeah. And it's very uh, playful. Oh, pardon me. Pardon me. Pardon, pa uh, which way to the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Office movie set? North. Hmm? North. It's what my own film is about, too. I cut right in the middle of a scene and you hear us talking about it and why it's not working or something. I mean, you didn't think about it, but you know that you're asking me, it just seemed to be those were the interesting things to me. Yes. It, it had to be integrated. It can't can't be just one long close-up on David Lynch. I wanted to film everything that I saw, and then I'd figure it out later where it might go. Yeah, I wanted to see the process. So there are a couple scenes in it, I think sections where you actually see it starts from nothing and, and becomes a set and actors and cameras. I love seeing them building the set, and then I, I imagine that everything is somewhat near each other. Is it all in one warehouse? Yeah, it looks like one big room. Yeah, it was all in one place, yeah. Yeah. It was wild. Yeah, you did a fantastic, I mean, 
those two documentaries were one of my favorites. And I think it's because you feel like you're in it. Because yes. you're talking you're to people. You're part of the crew. You're part of the crew. Yeah. You yeah. felt like it's a POV of a crew member almost. Right. Right. Well, it was. Yeah. <laughs> and I liked yeah. your shot where the camera is being brought up with the curtain. So it's like yeah. looking down. Did you attach the camera to a rope and you just pulled it up there? Like, what did you do? You know, they had a crane. Oh, okay. That's how those guys got up there. You see one guy, big rope, and he's pulling up, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The guys were going up and down, and I said, my God, I got I want to <laughs> see what it looks like from up there. Yeah. They said, jump, jump on. So they, you know, one of those cranes and yeah. were up in the air. So you're going to take that end and retie it over here? Correct. Okay, got it. But in the meantime, I'm going to be able to see into that room, which is exactly what I wanted. Very quiet, everybody. Roll sound. Rolling, rolling. Looks like you had a lot of fun making these yep. documentaries. Well, yeah. I mean, the whole thing is, is uh, it's fun for me. And those are the things that I'm actually seeing, you know. I mean, I'm seeing a guy walk towards me with a mop cleaning that famous floor. <laughs> yeah. And I'm thinking, well, I could just film the floor, but I mean, I think this is more interesting. But I don't think about it too much at all. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, you know. And I didn't know if once you had the footage, you could start editing and playing with the, the footage anytime you wanted. I could because when I filmed, it was one of the last weeks of the whole shoot. Oh. So uh, I had to get going and I didn't get going too soon and I kept putting it off again, trying to finish my own film. Then I had to kind of book at one point and just put everything down and go. And I was kind of amazed myself of how easily it, it kind of flowed together. Yeah. Because I had, I had a lot of footage and I also had to learn a program at the same time, which I had to go 4K and I had to uh, go to Premiere Pro. I mean, I knew I had a lot of good stuff because I'd watched it. You're not only a filmmaker, you're also an actor and you acted in Twin Peaks. So I wondered, I'm guessing you acted first and then, you know, weeks, months later, that then did the documentary? Yeah, yeah, that's what happened. Yeah, I was yeah. there. I mean, it only took me, like, I only shot for two days as an actor. And then, oh. and then I, you know, put my real clothes back on. And, uh, <laughs> and what was it like working with David Lynch again? I mean, it's been, it was probably 25 years since you had actually done that. It wasn't easy. And that's not because of David. It was because of me. As an actor, I wanted to find this person again. And I put it to sleep a long time ago. And I didn't have that much, like a lot of actors didn't. I mean, you had to hit the nail on the head immediately. There was no warming up. So that was a concern of mine. I don't know if other actors feel like this, but when you get on a set with a crew of, I think, how many people? I don't know, 60 people on that crew, one or another? You're, you're in front of a lot of people who know each other very well, have their own language at this point. You know what I mean? Yes. Mm -hmm. And you're, oh, someone says action to you, and you're really not that comfortable with the crew and your situation with the crew. And the crew's important. I mean, you know, at least it is for me. Some people, I suppose, can just block that out and go for it. But mainly I didn't. I I would finish a scene and think, no, that's, that's just not Ben. That's just, yeah. uh, I don't know what I'm doing here. This is, it, it doesn't feel right. And then he would say, no, no, it's good. It's good. Next one. So, he goes. <laughs> so I said, okay, all right. You know, what can you do? Right. He, he likes it. He likes it. But I wasn't completely living it yet. Whereas in the original, I finally started feeling really good. Whatever lines were given to me, I I just had a feeling of how it would all go. So You know, the part to me that felt very much like Ben and I thought was my favorite scene of yours was when you're talking about your father giving you a bike. And I thought oh, that like yeah. a beautiful scene. <laughs> I remember 
I remember writing My father got me this old Schwinn, second hand. He painted it green, got a new seat for it. Two-tone green, kind of a kind of a lime green and a deep forest green. Fat tires. Oh, it was so hard to ride, but I love that bike. I love that bike. I'd ride with my friends. Call the hospital. I want you to arrange to pay for all of Miriam uh, I don't even remember her last name, but they'll they'll know who she is. All of Miriam's medical expenses. That was a good scene. It was such a beautiful scene, and I I, I rewatched it today, and I was like, you know what? He's he seems like he's really trying to say there was better times. You know, we didn't have this whole terrible violence and stuff. Mm. And I, just, I don't know. I just love that scene. I think you did an incredible job with that scene. Oh, thank you very much. Briefly, I'd love to just talk about 1991 or 90. Uh, you know, back in the day, acting. You could have been the killer. You no, know, you were on the script. Ben as the killer. You actually did do the scene of killing Maddie, and I just wondered, as an actor, what was that like for you? Where you knew. You weren't really going to be playing that part. It wasn't really going to be on TV, but you had to go and, and act it anyways. Well, I was pleased because I knew the killer wasn't going to be in the show much longer. <laughs> As it turns out, that wasn't the case. I mean, I should have remembered this is David Lynch, and if he wants to have the killer be alive, then, then that's where it's going to be. That's true. Yep. As far as that's concerned, I knew about it, and so did Ray. I think it was David called us into a room before he said, I want to talk to you, and he said, uh, we made a decision and uh, you're going to do this and you're going to do that, but we don't want anyone to know, so we're going to play it like you're the killer, Richard, or whatever the scene was, and we're going to do the scene, and then we're going to do a scene with Ray, and it was a third, how oh, was the third one there? It would be Bob, so it would be Frank Silva. Yeah, 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 okay. So uh, I was first, which was kind of fun, because that sort of set the blocking of the scene, wherever that footage is, if you could get it, it's a million dollars to you guys. I, I, oh, that would be I really just want to know how you betray a killer. You played in X-Files and you played, uh, you know, evil characters to some degree. Ben Horn's not evil, though. I can't see Ben Horn being evil. I'm sure you did an amazing job and yeah. how you betrayed the character. I don't know. I don't find it difficult being evil. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean, guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Are you hearing me? I'm hearing you. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh. It's not. It's fun doing all of that. Yeah. Uh, I thought you was. were the killer. That's when right. I so, so Brian is actually new to Twin Peaks. Only maybe two years ago, I introduced him to Twin Peaks, and that's how we've gotten started here. And so we were watching week to we'd only watch one episode a week, yeah, we and we would talk week. about it. And for the longest time, he thought Ben Horn was the killer. I thought Ben was Horn the was the killer. Yes, uh, <laughs> seems right. Doesn't yeah. It? <laughs> so recently, I was talking to Brad Dukes, and he says hi, and he he wanted me to ask you what's going on with uh, the the Rudy uh, Wilson uh, film, which is a Richard. Beamer before the Big Bang, and I think you had a West Coast premiere. Well, that's what I keep telling you about. That this works and works. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it was. I kept on waiting. Let's wait till the end, and we'll get to, the, to uh, this movie. Uh, so, what was the question about that? Now, where are we at with it? 
<laughs> I thought I had finished it last year when Greg asked me to play it in the Seattle Museum. I took a look at it, although I wasn't there. At the same time, I looked at it and I said, no, no, this is this is not right. This mm. is not right. And I could go into a lot of blah. Once you say it, then I can tell you why. The short version is this Rudy Wilson and I started this film. It's got two guys trying to make a film. And it, the funny part about it is that we we don't know how to make a film and we're all fucked up about mm-hmm. it. But, but that isn't a written script. This is just us having a good time together. And sometimes we say, you know, we don't know what we're doing here. I saw the trailer and it was like really fast motion and reverse. And it was like, <laughs> it looked like it was younger him and older him. And it was all over the place. And it's like, ooh, this looks really interesting. I'd like to see well, this. Well, the thing <laughs> is, it's shot over a real 24 years. Wow. We, you see us both different. Yeah. I mean, it's beautiful that way. My original idea was to take this film that we couldn't make. We were going to make a real film beginning and end. Then he went off, this woman and I wrote a book and blah, blah, blah. We, we didn't. So I came back and I saw some footage one day and I said, Rudy, I got an idea. Again, I was in my mode of filming everything with mm-hmm. the, my camera daily. So when Rudy and I would sit and have our writer conversations about the script and write notes down and dialogue down. I always had a camera there filming us. Got it? Nice. I have all of that footage. And I said, Rudy, I got all this footage. We can make a film about two guys trying to write a film. (laughs) And that'll be more interesting. And also, what I want to do is I wanted to pick about eight or nine scenes that have a progression about them from the original script that we were writing. And I said, what we can do is we can film these with actors. But then, when you and I are talking about a scene, we can actually go to it. Wow. And we can intercut us talking about the scene. Right in the middle of the scene, the actors will be saying something and you'll hear us saying it and you'll back to, back to us in this room or wherever we are talking about the scene and back and forth. I'm doing something right now in this in this case to finish a certain sequence. Up. So you're going back and forth between two guys. You're seeing the process and the film at the same time. That's I love cool. It. I yeah. love it. That yeah. sounds awesome. And, um, throw a little something else it's kind of fun because it kind of relates to David Lynch's Mulholland Drive I don't know if his was real or not mine was well, Hasbrace who was a film one of the actors who plays this really he's a punk drummer he was really fantastic mm-hmm. at a certain point halfway through the film he said man I gotta go on tour I can't do anymore and I said oh my god I got more to shoot what am I gonna do and finally I won't tell you how I came to the conclusion but anyway I had to have somebody else play that part huh. so right in the middle of the film I was trying to figure out a way to explain to the audience why I've got a new actor all of a sudden. Now, David Lynch, I think, did that by not explaining it. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> yeah. So he already used that one up. Aww. But something happened in one of my rehearsals with the new guy, which I won't explain because it's really fun. You see the making of the process of this film, and you see a lot of mistakes, and you see cameras that don't work. Let's do it again, and we'll make it work this time. So this thing works in the film quite well now and I really love the fun of this film and it's uh, delightfully all over the place that's awesome so, I, well we can't wait to see it yeah, so yeah. I know uh, I, I, well <laughs> uh, damn it you'll be the first <laughs> right. Brad Dukes and us we're all going to be the first wherever you uh, show it we'll have to come and yeah, see it we'll, I'll send it to you you'll review it that'll be awesome I would love, we'll reviewer. have you back it's on not that'd the cool. New York Times but you know you. <laughs> I, that, I, that works that'd be cool so I think we're just about done but I'd love to say so what 
is about documenting that you enjoy so much? I mean, you've been doing it for a whole, over, life. A whole life, pretty much. Here. What I like about it is the spontaneity of it, I guess, not knowing quite where you're going next. And in, in this film, even when I'm filming the actors doing their scenes, there's some times when I don't even know what's going to happen next. We just have an idea, and I'm going to film it however I feel to do, as if it's a real situation. And I, I really don't care for the whole process of, of, of making movies. You know, mm. take one, take, put a camera up, and there's a dolly track, and you bring in the people, and the actor goes away, and then they bring the actor back, and then you do take <laughs> one, and you take two, you take, take three. Okay, we're doing the same thing with a close-up now. It's like, yeah. no. Right. There's a more fun way to do this. It's, it moves way too slow for me, or yeah. interesting to me. Well, it works for you. The style you've done works for you. I do like yeah. what I've seen. I love your part of a lot of the documentaries you've done, and I, th I think that's really special. Thank you so much. What, wait, wait, what documentaries have you seen? Well, what have I seen? We've seen, but I've seen the, the Twin Peaks ones. We saw the Twin Peaks one, but what else did I see? There was one something where there was a lady at a gate and she opened a door. Is this yours? I oh think my goodness, that was my friend. Yeah, yeah. I that. Yeah, I did that for her memorial. Yeah. Hello. Is anyone there? Where are you? You're in the what? Well, I need help. <laughs> I needed a nice entrance like that. Ooh, the greens, the blues, and the reds. Oh, you're going to like this. It was special. I felt like I was being part That's of that. very sweet. Yeah, yeah, it was a nice little moment. That was in India, of course, and uh, she was there. And uh, and I knew that the door was locked, and I uh. knew that if I knocked on it long enough, and I just had a feeling, uh. I'll, 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 hopefully she'll answer the door, and <laughs> there she'll be. It's funny, because I was like, did, did, did he plan this? Did he like plan to say, okay, I'm going to knock on the door a couple times, and then you come in, come and uh, open it? She didn't know I was knocking on the door. Uh. I mean, I just went to visit him that day, and I walked walked in and I saw that red door and I knew that they were behind it because it was like an open, it wasn't a room exactly, but it was an open uh, courtyard yeah, that that right. opened onto yeah. it. And I knew if I knocked on it long enough, she or Michael, her husband, would answer the door. Unfortunately, Michael wasn't there, so mm -hmm. she answered the door. That's really something. <laughs> it would be great to have Vimeo or other ways where other, yeah. our audience could uh, actually purchase uh, your work. So I think you really well, I'm hoping when I get done with this film <laughs> that I will uh, have a website and these things, you know, will just link you to Vimeo or wherever. Yeah, that'd be cool. I think that'd be wonderful. Yeah. I, hope, I know a lot of people would love to check those out. Yeah, so, yeah it's yeah. such an interesting career and everything you've done. It's and that's just, only a, a small piece. I, mean, I know, you, you, we could talk I, to you forever. I mean, I think you, you do sculpture, you do other types of work. No, you're very fascinating. I think that we could talk forever with you about your work, but thank you, Richard. So much for your time. It really is an honor to get to talk to you. And I, uh, no, my I can't pleasure. wait. To... My pleasure. I'm glad we finally got this together. And thank you, Richard Beamer, for your generous time today. Um, just being on the phone with him for over an hour. Yeah, that's um, awesome. It was just so cool. Hope everybody enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed talking to him. And just hearing his voice when we first called him saying hello, it was like, oh, my God, we're on the phone with Ben Horn. Yes. <laughs> I want, I want to rent a room at the Great Northern. Northern. Oh, yeah, I want to be like, so you got a room available? <laughs> 
It was really cool. Uh, so cool. It's a nice guy and really so, so interesting. And I, I really, really want to see his work. I, I hope he makes it available. His uh, Vimeo. Yeah. yeah. You know, the documentary we did talk about, about the summer of freedom. It is on YouTube. It's worth a watch. Yeah. But if we could get it so we can support Richard Beamer. And I think it's I'm something that should that. be shown in every school. I yeah. mean, like, it's, it, it's part of history. He was part yeah. of history. And he's just so humble about it. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, I did this. Right. Because he felt like it was the right thing to do. The fact that he did document a lot of this stuff is really cool. And I'm glad, it's so cool that PBS used it. And Yeah, uh, when they did their, their documentary, they used a lot of his footage for it. Yeah, and you know, this is stuff you learn in a history class, but at the same time, you know, not in depth like that. You're yeah. hearing it from someone who was there. Right. It's, it's crazy really cool. for something like me that it was like 10 years before I was born or so. You know, like, I mean, in some ways it's like we've come so far and yet some ways we still have so much farther to go. I mean, it's it's, it's, it's very crazy. true. It's very true. But to think that was happening 10 years before you were born. Yeah. Blows my mind. It really, right. Yeah. That's putting it in perspective, really, to mm-hmm. see that, like, what was going on. And, uh, yeah, it was like 12, 13 years from when I was born. Yeah. We owe it to people like Richard Beamer and all those folks that did that. You yeah. know, um, hope, hopefully everybody enjoyed today's show. And if you did... You can find us on social media. You can like us on Facebook at Twin Peaks Unwrapped. Ben's always on Twitter at Twin Peaks Unwrapped. And um, Brian's always on Facebook at Twin Peaks Unwrapped. Yeah, we're always getting likes, we're getting some feedback. And you can send us an email at Twin Peaks Unwrapped at gmail.com. Thank you, Jamie, for your email about the episode with JC. We didn't write you back, but we do appreciate the email. Well, yeah, we'll get there. We'll, yeah. get, we'll get to you. But we appreciate you always writing to us. I just want to say that out loud. That is today's show. We'll be back next week. Yeah. You photograph down in Mexico, Buster. Mm. It's mm. kind of like India, but it isn't a Mexican but, Indian. It's just, they're similar. Similar, yeah. <laughs> the yeah. food and I in Mexico do not have a good working relationship. India is way easier for me. Really? Oh, yeah. and I'm the opposite. Yeah. Ah. Oh, I got so sick in India. I had bad milk in Dehradun. <laughs> it's the title of your memoir, yeah, I, I understand. Know, it's a great title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.